Hello everyone, it's August 31st, 2021. Well, we had an interesting launch this past week. Astra did make it to orbit, but they did make it off the pad, and they did it with style. Not many rockets go for a walk before liftoff, but if you'd like to go for a walk, go for it. You can listen and learn and liftoff. And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 323 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So a short fall of graph toss. Uh, we now have a third drone ship. Is it the third one? As far as I know, it's the third. The third operational one. Yeah, there might, I was just thinking there might be some other one like waiting in the wings ah. or something. I don't know. So this is a pretty cool ship and it's an actual ship, right? It's not a, what was it called? A, like a barge. barge. There you <laughs> go. That's around. the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Like this apparently can operate all on its own, which I think is what you need in order to qualify as a drone. But <laughs> I mean, it looks cool. So I'm comparing photos of what, yeah. you know, a shortfall of Gravitas looks like compared to the other ones, and it's bigger, it's more, it has a cool shape. Um, it doesn't look like a landing pad stuck on top of a barge. Um, it, I mean, it's actually, it still does, but it looks like a cool version of one. <laughs> and then it has this big structure towards the back, which I, I assume is where they house the Octograbber. Although, now that I'm thinking about it, where was that put on the other ships? It was in one of the cargo containers so i it, it might not have actually been a cargo container but it looked like a cargo container with a garage door cut into the side i put a schematic in the discord that shows exactly the shelter for the octogram yeah oh right right so the the, the it does have a little door on the one yeah end, the, saying, the yeah. flappy door on the side is uh like part of the shield the the blast a black yeah there you go um that's like at like uh not a 45 degree angle, but maybe like a 30 degree angle. Um, so that opens and closes. And then I, I guess the garage isn't like a proper, uh, cargo container because it looks shorter than the one next to it. It looks like it's just a stand that, um, um, that tanks are put on top of. So it looks like it's just like a, a novel structure. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, when you look at a shortfall of Gravitas, you can see that there's, you know, basically a door the same size in the uh, the black buildings. Oh, yeah. James in the chat says, what what's the Octagrabber? Yeah, this is the Roomba like uh, machine that can go out and hold on to the first stage, which is like really cool because you don't have to have people get on <laughs> get on a ship with. Uh, you know, an unsecured, very tall load, even though it's center gravity's, you know, reasonably low. Uh, and, and you don't have to have people get on with this thing and weld boots, um, onto the deck to keep the thing in place. Um, the Octagrabber can just Roomba its way over, uh, and grab the, grab the first stage from its, or b grab it by the, uh, the launch clamps. And so do you guys know, um, how the Octagrabber secures itself to the deck? Does it use, does it also weld itself or does it just use magnets or is it just heavy enough? I think it's just heavy enough. I think. Yeah. That'd have been my, uh, my total guess as well. Yeah. That just adds enough inertia to make it much more secure than it would be otherwise. Yeah. Inertia, but also like a moment arm, like it lowers the center of gravity mm -hmm. even further. Mm -hmm. It's flat. It's, yeah. It's, uh, it's like if you if you took a, a Roomba and you kind of squished it like a tostone to make it a <laughs> even more of a pancake kind of square shape. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's kind of octahedral. It's got you know four major sides and then four minor sides. But yeah, 
I, I always thought Octo was in reference to eight arms, but of course there are only four launch clamps, so that, that would be a quadra grabber. So I think the Octa is uh, is talking about its shape. It just looks from photos like it, it would be hard to tip that thing over with the Octa yeah. grabber on there. Yeah, you would almost it, like it almost couldn't be done. Like a what do you call it? like a like a, a, a weeble wobble? Is that what they call? Yeah, and and especially because the grabber is you know flat on the deck, um, yeah. it you know adds some. You, you have to really get some leverage to to be able to move it. Okay, so back to the <laughs> back to the shortfall of gravitas. Um, the the big news is that yeah, it did its first mission this week and. It's it's a little bit of a bummer because while it's capable of operating solo, they did have at least one tug. I don't remember if there were additional support vehicles with it, but you know that that makes sense. You know, it's its first run. Let's make sure that everything works properly. Um, but Elon Musk tweeted a video, and I'll put a link in the show notes. This this video that's like quadcopter footage of this thing chugging along in the water, and it it really moves fast for a big flat boat <laughs> like what you know something that's basically doing the work of an unpowered barge uh it it really cranks so it makes me happy i think it looks too much like you know like a a naval like stealth ship but like that's you know that's the spacex aesthetic okay fine uh it's very black, and and then a lot of that support structure almost looks like a stealth bomber. Like yeah, you know, it's got the kind of angles and color. Well, um, the 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 Navy has stealth ships that also look like a stealth bomber. Like it's you know that's just kind of yeah. The that way. one James Bond had uh yeah had one of those. You know. <laughs> Navy or James Bond, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, it, what makes me really happy about this is that it looks like it's fit to fit to purpose. Like this is actually built with knowledge of the job that it has to do just read the instructions and of course i still love you were were and are excellent vehicles um, that are doing futuristic things but they look cobbled together and of course you know they they haven't always been the same vehicle like you know they've they've uh ended leases on barges and leased out new barges and just moved things over and like a shortfall of gravitas just looks like it's finally what it's supposed to look like i don't know it, it, i this is the space future that i want rocket 3.3 as oh, someone put in the notes it exits stage right sure i don't know if it's right or left but it definitely <laughs> did a stage like exit stage south just doesn't have the same ring yeah it didn't exit the way that most rockets usually do <laughs> yeah which is up but no in this case to the side and i gotta give a hat tip to Sam in the chat for uh, for coming up with exit stage right. By the way, we can only have one title for this episode. I don't know what it's going to be so far, but we have so many good suggestions. <laughs> like I I feel compelled to read off some of the ones that we have right now because they're just yeah. so good, um, and not all of them are going to make it. So um, uh, Ben Hallert suggested per lattice ad astra. <laughs> <laughs> which is so good. Uh, UNC Willie uh, suggested sometimes things go sideways. Um, and then uh, James Sutherland suggested crisscross slide to the right, it, which, 
you know, I'm really trying not to get music stuck in my head. Mike uh, suggested Astra, but just um, with non-ASCII characters so that it's spelled sideways. Uh, <laughs> UNC Willie said the rocket is pitching downrange. Uh, James also suggested the range safety officers in the loo, which I, I have issue. We'll get into that. One of these is going to be the show title, unless somebody comes up with something better. Uh, but I, I had to go through them because this one really made me happy. Mm-hmm. So what happened, I guess at this point we can speculate, but it seems like we have some idea of what went wrong, right? I guess I'll just go ahead and give what I think the going theory is, is just that something went wrong uh, with the umbilical line that attaches to the bottom of the rocket. There was an explosion, and that took out one of the engines, and then that's what caused it to pitch over. But we do know that it basically did not have an engine. Like That's the one thing that I think we do know. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that it pitched to the side, which, first of all, is good that it didn't lose an engine on like the other side because sure. then it, were, it just would have rammed into the strong back. Yeah. So that would not have been good. So it couldn't have had a better engine out on the pad. Um, if you're going to lose an engine, that's the one. <laughs> but, yeah, it has a thrust-to-weight rate ratio of 1.25, which means that when you take out one engine, it's just one to one, which is why it didn't go up, but just kind of drifted before it yeah. burned off enough fuel to start lifting off. Is it is it 1.1 with four engines? That seems like... Because, I mean, it, it did have a little bit of upwards motion it, yeah like maybe like uh but i guess you can say like thereabouts but yeah roughly yeah. 1.1 yeah so yeah. pretty much just like barely enough to keep itself aloft so i'm okay maybe i'm entirely off here but if 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 it's with five engines if it's thrust weight ratio is 1.25 or five fourths doesn't that mean each engine contributes kind of like a one fourth to that value, and so taking away one would be closer to just one point zero. Um, you lose an engine, <laughs> or do they not add linearly? I I would think uh, that they would. But don't don't forget the throttle though, because um, they don't go to a hundred percent throttle right off the pad. They have a throttle up period. So when they have an engine out, they probably throttle up the other ones. It's it seems mm. like one point zero to one point one is a trivial amount of additional throttle, but maybe that was intentional. So James in the chat says, so cool that the guidance system caught it and kept it going. I was impressed. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's really cool yeah. is if you if you watch some of the close-up footage, you can see that the vehicle tips really far, like 15 or 20 degrees off of vertical, yeah. and it doesn't correct itself um, for the first you know half second or whatever. Um, and my belief is that they have the TVC frozen until it gets a certain amount of altitude or until it's burned for a certain amount of time so that you don't have um, TVC activation while you're still on the pad. And so I think what happened is it just got high enough where it the, the mission rules allowed it to catch itself. And then it didn't bring itself back up to vertical. Um, it was, it still looked like it was a little off, but considering how little lateral velocity it picked up, it, it must have been pretty close to vertical. Maybe it was just a trick of the camera perspective. But yeah, that, that moment where it's pointed very far off axis and then catches itself gave me a, you know, armchair quarterback, a lot of confidence in the system. Like it, it looked, good it looked like you know um task failed successfully like it 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 really did look good yeah people responsible for that 
part of the rocket must be feeling like a yeah they did their job group of badasses right now <laughs> right 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 yeah uh engine wranglers uh two through five went out for a drink <laughs> so um in the show notes i don't know who wrote this ba- the base of the rocket bumped into the launch mount which sent it scuttling so did it did it actually nudge the launch mount and move farther to the side mm-hmm. yeah actually it pitched towards the uh or the the base of the rocket pitched towards the strongback and you can watch if you watch it you can see it actually then go and push off of it essentially and so there was a collision there i guess that makes sense like if you lose one engine on the other side i guess that's what would yeah. happen yeah and, and and it straight up torques itself from having uh an angle of attack of i guess 80 degrees back to an angle attack of 90 degrees as it's doing its zooting off to the side yeah and then i can see you're right then the back end swings under the nose which is what you would expect if you're if you're pitching the rocket over because it's doing the the broom balancing on your on the palm of your hand. Um, but yeah, Colin points out that you can see the strong back jiggle a little bit as it's contacted, and it's it's really clear that that's what that's what's happening. Wow, that's yeah, it does jiggle. And, and so that contact actually caused damage, which we believe is why they terminated the flight. Right. Well, I mean. They would have had to just because it wouldn't have made it to orbit. I mean, you can't launch with only four engines when it's designed to launch with five, right? So when you Why have not? to terminate it, it's having to fight gravity much further oh, down. Oh, yeah, you, you yeah, you have additional gravity losses. Yeah. yeah. You also have seconds worth of fuel wasted at the very beginning of the flight. I mean, but, even more than a few seconds, really, considering how long it yeah. hovered there. It, it, yeah, but it, it really depends. About 20 seconds before it started going up. Really that that long. Mm. I mean, and the thing is, like, it was moving up the whole time. It's just at what point do we say, okay, this is roughly equivalent to where it would have been. Right. Had more vertical motion than horizontal. <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent metric. Um, but I don't think that this um, this little bonk totally precluded reaching orbit because it it really depends on the vehicle's capabilities. Like we design vehicles to have engine out capabilities. That's why this thing has five engines. It's just a question of at what point can it tolerate an engine out? But I don't think that there's any launch vehicle that can tolerate an engine out, like pretty much like on the pad. Like usually it's like within, you know, a minute you can have one, then two, you can have two or whatever. I don't think there's anything that can take an engine out that. Well, here's, here's my, my understanding, or at least what I think happened. So, um, and and, and I know Mike uh, and I, we talked, talked about that a little bit earlier so right so it has the engine out uh the base of the rocket impacts the strong back does some physical damage to the rocket itself but eventually rights itself and you know that damage that is done doesn't actually preclude it from being able to still fly roughly successfully but at this point they know they're not going to make it to orbit and so if you're watching it you can see like a little piece of the kind of fuselage kind of ripped off and kind of sticking out and then at some point near max q They've now wandered far enough out of where they should be flying, their flight envelope or whatever. And at that point, they make the decision that, okay, well, let's just kill the engines and let it splash down Pacific nice and safe. Let's collect as much data as we can, but now we're kind of wandering a little too far outside. So it didn't seem like anything special happened before they triggered the, or, you know, the engine shutdowns. I think that's what happened is that, you know, why collect data only up to there? Because at that point, then they had wandered uh, out, out of their, their, Uh, So uh, Falcon 9, I mean, it probably depends on the payload, the the mass of the payload, but Falcon 9 can get to, has demonstrated its ability to get to orbit 
with an engine out three seconds. Oh, that's three seconds before main engine cutoff. The earliest one was uh, T plus 79. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't like that's a really interesting way to put it, David. Like, what can the industry support? Can anybody support having a dead engine um, at T zero? So I mean, I'm pretty sure. I mean, again, like you said, it would depend on the payload. But I'm pretty sure right. that if you have a payload, you probably can't. Yeah, I think you can take it. You can take it as as uh, written that in in this problem we're talking about some nominal amount of payload. Because <laughs> um, you know what's the What's the point of, of launching a rocket with nothing? I mean, engine out capability doesn't matter if you don't have a payload. No, I, I had read about, yeah, giving a rocket, you know, a K out of N capability. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, nine engines and it could fly with eight out of nine. But in practice, though, I think what you're saying is correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you I can't have anything with a significant payload. Yeah. yeah. Be Which we should point out that it didn't have a payload apart from maybe like a dummy payload. So there was no customer that was... Uh, yes. Yeah. On uh, 3.3? The military lost a mass simulator. Oh, they were flying a mass simulator this time. Okay, because we knew that they had bought two... Uh, two launches. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the mass simulator was an actual payload, just one they didn't care too much about. But that's pure speculation. Some black ops stuff going on? <laughs> I mean, yeah, black ops, but like, you know, more like, well, we're sending something to space, so we might as well put a camera on it, you know, <laughs> like something like that. I guess, you know, like, why not make something of yeah. your mass that you're going to be putting in there? Yeah, and that, that's the thing is like, you know, mass simulators are traditionally, you know, cheese. But like, I think I've seen recently more and more instances of, you know, them saying it's a mass simulator, but it's not just dumb metal. It's, you know, like I said, especially if it's, if it's, uh, uh, the Air Force. So yeah, we, we knew that they had bought two launches. Um, so it makes sense that this one would have been, you know, uh, a mass simulator cameras or no. So, okay. I, I didn't realize that. So thank you for pointing that out. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the the flappy piece <laughs> on the yeah. vehicle. You can you can see uh, the onboard cameras as ascent is happening. There's um, some sort of panel. It it looks like one of the panels that surround the engines. It was suggested, at least by you know again Scott Manley, because <laughs> he's, he's like such a good reference. That it's probably the raceway cover, like because that's where the explosion seems to have happened. It looks bigger than the raceway cover to me, but I don't. It looks to me, actually to me it looks just like because it's like the same shape. It has like a because it's not a flat piece. It's kind of curved. Oh yeah, you know what? You're right. Uh, it it has it has uh, a long aspect ratio. I was seeing like the sides of it because it's almost shaped like a, like a tent, yeah, with a flat top. And I saw those sides flap out, and I didn't notice that they weren't supposed to be flapped out. That's yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Now, did you watch how hard it strikes the vehicle when it kind of flops open yeah. or gets? Blasted open. That's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, because you can actually see it upon liftoff. Like you know, that's the explosion that happens, and that cover basically gets shot upward and it swings and it kind of like bangs into the side of the of you know the rocket. So, like something exploded and pretty much you know dislodged it, um, and it it just completely came off except for where it was attached at the mm -hmm. top, and so it just mm -hmm. you know kind of like hung there up until like managed and cut off, and then at that point it was just you know flying in the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm rewatching it, and you can totally see. It flap upwards. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. All right. So, uh, mystery solved. The, <laughs> the bottom end of the raceway cover, uh, is sort of like flapping around as it's ascending. You can see it drifting out more and more as the ascent continues. And then when they 
cut the engines, the vehicle starts tumbling and, and this thing really flaps around. You, it looks like it smacks the vehicle on its first flap and then flaps back in the opposite direction. And then at that point it separates, I guess, huh? So what makes me think that orbit was not achievable is it's kind of silly because the, when I was thinking about it, I was like, ah, if it wouldn't have been for that one, that one panel, they would have been fine. But like, clearly that's not the case. And it's really fun that like our three eyes can look at, well, our four eyes, if we include Scott Manley, can, <laughs> can look at this. Pairs of eyes, don't email me, uh, can look at this and see different parts, different pieces of evidence. And, and all, you know, we can put it together in different ways. But when we talk about it, we can come to, you know, one conclusion and one understanding. And it makes mm-hmm. me happy. Right, right. And you just made me think it's, I think it's worth mentioning too that, right? The, Rocket 3.2, the previous one, was semi-successful, right, where it was just shy of reaching orbit because of the, the fuel, the, the, the mixture ratio that they were using. And so you can imagine even like when they go and, you know, change it and optimize it since then, um, there's still not that much margin in this vehicle. Yeah, right. 20% of your engines and then zooting off to the side for 20 seconds before <laughs> you really start going Jeez. airborne. <laughs> so. Yeah, and apparently so one of the changes that they made to get more fuel was they basically just extended the length of the rocket, right, by about like a meter or so, like oh, something really? like that. Yeah, they actually elongated it. So it's slightly taller than the... Mm-hmm. Than the last yeah. one, I think five, five feet, right, or something. Yeah, like that. so that's how they fixed that. So, so they just made the vehicle bigger, you know, <laughs> which I think is cool. You know, I don't know. That's like, well, and and the other thing that's cool is this iterative process. Like the yeah, entire exactly. time, yeah. they've been like, "We're gonna fail. We're gonna fail. We're gonna fail," and then we're gonna uh-huh. fail again. Like it's only been four years since Astro was founded. Like four years. That is a good thing to keep in mind because I kind of I kind of forget that. And like when you put it in that context, like when you think about how long it took SpaceX, for example, you know, like yeah. this is actually pretty good. Mm. They're doing pretty well. They're doing really well actually. Yeah, and and SpaceX didn't count on as many failures as Astra has. And so SpaceX nearly died. Um I don't know if that was, you know, something they could have fixed um by keeping if if they knew they were gonna f- fail that many times. But like um, I, I don't know at what point Astra gets to the Falcon 9 flight six or uh, Falcon 1 flight six point where it's, you know, launch or die or orbit or die. Right. That was flight six. No, I think it was four. Oh, it was four. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. You can tell that uh, I'm running on coffee this morning. Like, I don't know at what point they they get to that point, but uh, it certainly doesn't seem anytime soon, especially considering that Astra is currently valued at what, like two billion? Like they're they're much better leveraged, might be the right word. Like they're in a, they're in a much better place to have all these failures. They've got a ton of orders, like over fifty. Yeah. Remember we talked about a week or two ago. So they they have a, a lot of interest in their vehicle. Yeah. Really cool to watch this company go. Yeah. They have vehicle number seven, like almost ready to go, actually. I don't know when they're going to launch next. I mean, I, I guess obviously after they fix this problem, you know, they figured out what went wrong. Because the whole point, right, the whole point of Astra um, is to build these things at a very low cost and launch them apparently as often as not just once a week, but even more often than that, um, which seems staggering because uh, this is still an expendable launch vehicle, but the idea is to get the cost of production down. So Yeah, and they're also, also supposed to be very mobile, right? That was the whole thing with the DARPA challenge, right? Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. Basically throw this in a flatbed and mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, have a crew of, you know, a dozen people or something set it up and launch it, if even. Like, so I'm I'm really not a stock trading kind of person. Like, I, I have a 401k, 
but I've started buying a few stocks just like as a little game, just kind of like, Ooh, let's, you know, let me buy one or two shares and and see how they do. And I actually bought, um, an extra, I I realized I had, um, some extra cash in fidelity that, uh, that was just in a money market account that I could, uh, throw, uh, into a stock. And so I, I picked up an extra share, uh, of Astra Thursday or Friday before this launch. And, you know, (laughs) I, I, the first thing I did this morning, um, when I saw this footage was I went and checked the, the price expecting it to have dropped and be like, Ooh, maybe I'll go buy, you know, another share cause the price went down, but, uh, it, it hasn't, it, it may drop on, on Monday when the U S market opens up again, but I don't know. It's, it's kind of fun to have, you know, a couple of bucks worth of skin in the game. So let's do three short and sweets as usual. And Ben, what's the first one? All right. Seven gigabytes of paperwork for HLS. NASA agreed to extend the HLS work stoppage by seven days this week. The first cause of the extension was NASA blowing a filing deadline due to key HLS personnel traveling to and from the space symposium. The second cause was an absolute flood of documentation from parties involved in the lawsuit. DOJ lawyers representing NASA received more than seven gigabytes worth of PDFs and had two critical limitations when uploading these documents to DOJ's document management system. The maximum file size of 50 megabytes and a somewhat fuzzy limit on the number of files associated with the case. That limit is somewhat lower than the hundreds of files that would be required for all of these documents. A complicating factor was Adobe Acrobat crashing when DOJ employees tried to paginate and combine multiple small files to reduce the overall file count. The judge accepted a motion to submit documents on DVDs, uh, but declined to extend the work stoppage until Blue Origin argued that it wouldn't have enough time to review the records on DVD. The litigation continues. Next up, Starlink gets lasers, or freaking lasers, as I would like to say. (laughs) At the recent annual space symposium, SpaceX CEO Gwen Shotwell revealed the reason for the break in Starlink launch cadence these past few months. Shotwell explained that Starlink satellites are now being equipped with laser crosslink communication, which will allow satellites to directly communicate with each other rather than relay through a ground station. This will reduce latency as well as the number of ground stations necessary to maintain in the constellation. Shotwell also stated that Starlink user terminals are expected to come down in cost from $499 by about 50% before the end of the year, and that a further halving in price is also expected. And finally, first test of Astroscale satellite capture technology. Astroscale announced the successful completion of a test by its ELSA-D spacecraft, which stands for End of Life Services by Astroscale Demonstration. The main servicer spacecraft released a small satellite called Client, which was then recaptured using a magnetic mechanism. While the test only lasted tens of seconds, and the client only moved centimeters away from the servicer before recapture, it was an important first step towards the company's goal of providing on-orbit servicing. Next steps will include an attempt to capture the client while it tumbles, as well as inspecting the client spacecraft. All right, so this week in Spaceflight History, we have one winner. Yeah, he 
kind of nailed it. So we have Chepard Tocosi, but we had several other, what, like three or four other guesses that were wrong, but they were valiant tries. I feel like this was a hard one. So congratulations to Chepard Tocosi for nailing it. You got it exactly right. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is kind of obscure or yes. I might be wrong. Okay. Okay. So yes, I am right. Indeed. And I guess we'll find out. I don't know how much information you were able to get about this because uh, I wouldn't have thought there would be a whole lot to pull from. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went down some interesting paths. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I think it was Hot Stuff McToddlepot said, I, I bet you, I bet you Ben's reading a book right yeah. now. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and indeed, uh, this event uh, is mostly documented in books, but enough of them were available online that I didn't have to reference any of my tiny, tiny, tiny library that is in cardboard boxes in the attic right now. So the clue was, it's like being in space, but weather und mit Braunschweiger. So a little bit of German there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 4th of September, 1968. Von Braun. Von Braun? Everybody back then pronounced it Von Braun, and now we pronounce it Von Braun. And I don't know why. Uh, but anyway, uh, Werner Von Braun uh, tested a, uh, a spacesuit in the NBS, uh, the Neutral uh, Buoyancy uh, Simulator. So first off, uh, I had two major questions. The first is, which suit was he using? And there are a couple of photos. Um, one of Only one that I was able to find uh, shows him and all of the suit. Um, and in that photo, it looks remarkably like, uh, the Navy Mark II suit used in the Mercury program, but uh, like it's got the iconic, uh, zipper that goes diagonal across the chest, like uh, a seatbelt. But, um, there is also a second, uh, zipper that is about at belly button level. And the, the Mark IV had one zipper going across the chest and then another one that went across the hips and then a lower one that went from the hip to the crotch. So I, I did some searching. I believe that this is, that this is basically, uh, a modified Mark four. Um, so the Mark four had the, the shiny, shiny outer layer, and then it had a rubber bladder on the inside. And I don't think that this is just the rubber bladder. I, Surprisingly, I was not able to find any reference photos of the inner bladder. Um, I, I think it's because it is sewed, they're, they're sewed together. Um, and so when you look for, um, additional layers, all you see is the undergarment, uh, which is dramatically different. It has like panels on it to give you some distance between your skin and the suit, I believe. But I was really confident that I could find an exact image of what I was looking for, if only because um, Adam Savage uh, has built a replica uh, Mark IV. But I, I wasn't able to find this exactly. But I'm pretty sure this is either a modified Mark IV uh, or just straight up the the inside of it. So it it's rubbery. It's got some accordion-like folds around the the waist and the arms and the the thighs. Um, and then the the real telltale is the laced boots uh, that go along with it. And, and so we'll talk more about the Mark IV at MBS. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is just a, a, a modification for use in the water. 
yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a sec. So which suit? The other question I had was which date? Because I also saw that this is the 4th of September, 68. I also saw November 14th, 67 as um, being the date that this happened. Um, and I think what it basically comes down to is they are both correct. There are two different events. And I didn't see anybody saying the first time or anything like that. It was just, hey, he did this thing. Actually, his his dip into the pool uh, in 67, November 67, uh, appears to be more or a better documented, let's say. And what's particularly interesting, there, there's this book uh, that I'll, I'll link in the show notes. I really want to get my hands on it now. Um, it's a collection of his, uh, of, uh, Von Brown's daily notes as compiled and edited, uh, by his, um, public outreach office manager, something like that. Um, and it, it seems really cool. Like if you want to see the inner workings at the highest level, um, uh, of the early human spaceflight, uh, programs like that seems like a really interesting perspective to have. Um, but apparently in 67, he, um, jumped in and, um, did a practice task on the, uh, S4B aft dome. So this was preparing to use the, the S4B as, uh, a wet lab for Skylab, right? So, um, the idea was to just fly an basically an unmodified S4B. Once you get into orbit, then you can pull the engine out and put some seals in and then use the S4B that had once contained fuel as a, a laboratory. And Skylab ended up being a modified S4B in, in a lot of ways, but it, it wasn't like the first people to get there had to do a bunch of EVAs to turn it into a laboratory. It was ready to go. Um, uh, when it got to orbit. But apparently what happened in 67 was Von Braun hopped in the water to to try out a couple of different tasks, uh, apparently installing rubber seals. And it's, it's tough to say because it's really mentioned in passing. Um, what we do know is that that was the task performed the next day uh, by Cooper, Lusma, and McCandless. What's really interesting is that Von Braun wrote in his notes a remark to somebody, I don't know, but he basically like scoffed that they were doing the same tasks that he had done, but they did it with scuba gear instead of pressurizing the suit. Um, he, he said that like doing it in the pressurized suit is what made it more difficult. And so like, ah, they're cheating. That's easy. It's just really funny that like, yeah, it's okay if it's easy because like it's going to be hard on orbit. Like <laughs> we're allowed to try this the easy way first. But uh, you know, uh that's uh that's Von Brown. Yeah, and Ben, it's it's a small point, but uh I remember uh when you did that awesome this week space flight on STS uh 2 <laughs> uh fairly shortly after I joined the podcast um it uh jack lausma's last name is pronounced more like lausma lausma not lausma i i will do that forever and ever um so just <laughs> remind me each time thank you okay um so yeah the answer to which suit is probably something like the mark four the answer to which date is yes so like that's that's kind of as far as this particular event goes but just because there isn't a lot of information, maybe maybe this uh, this book on his daily notes would have uh, um, had had more to say. 
But I got really fascinated by the NBS because when I first saw this event, uh, when, you know, like when I was looking for an event for this week, uh, cause there was nothing in the books, I found this and I was like, Oh, cool. This is like one of the first, uh, uses, uh, like one of the early uses of the neutral buoyancy lab at Johnson. And no, it's, it's the NBS at Marshall, not the NBL at Johnson. And so I went down this whole rabbit hole looking into the neutral buoyancy simulator. And it makes me very happy because the story of the MBS is full of early, early U.S. spaceflight drama, right? Like it, it was such a different time and it, it, it's really, really good. And excuse me if this winds up being a little, um, back and forth and, and distracted. Basically, I formed multiple opinions that I then changed as I learned more. So that, that may still uh, be in the way that I've structured this. So NBS wasn't explicitly an astronaut training facility like NBL is, right? At, at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, they put astronauts in fake EVA suits and they put them in the water with fake ISS parts and they practice procedures that they're going to do on orbit. NBS was built to prove that you could do things on orbit, period, not teach people how to do them. I say that even though it wound up uh, being an astronaut training facility uh, in some part. Um, what's, what's interesting is basically they realized, hey, this could be really useful for training. And then apparently Alan Bean caught wind of it and went and checked it out. And he was like, hey, this is really cool. We need to do more of this. Um, and, and, you know, they had done a lot of training in pools, but the problem was that they were using essentially like commercial pools that were open to the public. And so not only do you have to worry about closing the pool and or dealing with the public being at the pool at the same time, but they also have water currents and all these other things that aren't, uh, aren't ideal for this kind of thing. And so, you know, dedicated facilities were built for training. NBS w did not have a definitive, we're open for business date. Um, but you can think of it as being open for business, uh, sometime in the early to mid 1960s. Uh, originally they just had one small tank, um, and they, they used it as an alternative to the vomit comet. I, I didn't realize how much the vomit comet was used by non-astronauts. Uh, in fact, I read a story that's part of the, um, the NASA oral history project in which one of the scientists, uh, was tasked this is really going to get gruesome with, um, beheading a bunch of rats. And she spent days and days beheading rats in zero G. They were, they were looking at medical procedures and they were worried about, um, blood squirting everywhere. And she, you know, she was a biologist and she was familiar with space. And she basically said, rats aren't going to, aren't going to do it because their blood pressure just isn't high enough. Their, their hearts are too small. Um, yes, blood will squirt out, but it'll just stay on one ball attached to the body. Um, and I, I believe she proved herself right, but they, they basically wanted to do this experiment and she was the only person who, uh, was not squeamish enough to actually do it. So they gave her a guillotine, uh, and cages full of rats. And she spent days on the vomit comet, just chopping heads off. 
uh, which is horrifying and fascinating at the same time. And, and like the, the alternative that they were looking at instead of a guillotine was like some sort of laser scalpel. I don't know. It's just a crazy weird story, uh, from, uh, from the early sixties. But anyway, so, you know, in the, in the 1960s, they had this single tank. They added a second tank, uh, sometime around 1966. I, I don't know if this was particular to Marshall or just NASA in general at that time. Uh, but they had a very, very limited budget to, to build this second tank. So they built it using, um, an explosive forming tank that was disused and, and available for other purposes. They built the second tank in, in a dedicated building, but the building was actually a damaged Saturn V corrugated section that they then put like some sort of, some sort of roof on, like a conical roof. So I, I just imagine something that looks very much like a grain silo that's built out of part of a rocket. <laughs> the major upgrades that the second tank featured, uh, were a water heater. The water was not heated in the first tank. Better lighting. I write I, I, in the show notes. I wrote better lighting, um, but I think it's in the Wikipedia article. They actually call it adequate lighting, which indicates to me that the first tank had inadequate lighting. Yeah, um, <laughs> stands to reason. And so the the first tank also had something uh, that the second tank did not have, which was an immense amount of algae. So they had to experiment with the types and amounts of chemicals that they used. Uh, and I, I guess they mostly just settled on chlorine, uh, lots and lots of chlorine to the point where people like describe the facility as just reeking of chlorine, uh, trying yeah. to keep the algae in control. And like these features were added, but like just barely the, the filter that they used, um, was literally a cots fil a commercial off the shelf filter. They went down to the local pool store and bought a filter. Uh, the heating rig wasn't like a dedicated pool heating rig. They just had a steam line that ran next to the building and they installed a tap to be able to flow steam, uh, across, I'm assuming like, uh, the, the lines that were being pumped around. I, I don't know. I, they might have just dumped the steam directly into, uh, an auxiliary tank or something. I kind of doubt it, but like, who knows at this point? And if this second tank seems, uh, low budget and ramshackle, you're not going to want to hear about the third tank because it gets worse. So <laughs> in 1968, they added this third tank, uh, because they wanted to be able to test, uh, larger components, uh, larger Skylab components, uh, trying to figure out if they wanted to go with the wet lab technique. Um, they were doing some of the wet lab work in the second tank, but they, they basically had components that were too big to fit in the second tank. And so the third tank, uh, by all the accounts I was able to find, was a, a complete coup. They literally had no money allocated for construction. So they were running off of whatever equipment they had sitting around, um, as well as a director's, uh, the, the Marshall director's discretionary fund. But even that would, it, it would fall quite short of the, the amount of money it would take to build a new building. So they decided to use uh, building 4706, which is the model and prototyping building. But in order to use that building, they would have to pour a new foundation, which was also well out of the budget. 
Uh, but you know, it's the sixties and, you know, it's sort of a do whatever you can because you must kind of, uh, attitude at NASA and Von Braun and, uh, W.R. Kurz, the, um, manufacturing engineering director at Marshall were like basically dead set on having this larger tank. Um, they decided that, you know, the wet lab, was the you know likely to be the way to go and they needed to test it to find out and so uh with no money to pour a new foundation they found a leak under the building and said hey uh we need to appropriate funds from the maintenance uh budget in order to fix this foundation <laughs> um and so you know they found this leak and they fixed a leak uh, by pouring eight feet of concrete. The eight feet of concrete also just happened to be what they needed to install uh, this uh, this third tank. And, and have no doubts, this uh, resulted in an audit from GAO. <laughs> and that audit led to a reprimand. Um, but the tank was constructed. You know, maybe it's just sort of the fact that it was a fait accompli. Um, but the, the tank was constructed before anybody could stop them and they used it. And not only did they use it, but they actually sanctioned astronaut training use of the tank. Uh, a couple of astronauts had been in the, the second tank, like the, the mama bear tank, but it, it seemed so useful for training procedures, um, that Johnson actually assigned or, or established um, an ORI committee, an operational readiness inspection committee. Um, and their work took about a year before they, you know, officially approved it for astronaut training. Um, but they wound up uh, not only uh, training a couple of astronauts in the tank, but they assigned or, or they arranged for two astronauts to be available to do work in the tank uh, for equipment testing. Like, hey, you astronauts know what you're going to need to do. Why don't you do this hands-on testing for us? Uh, or at very least consult, I suppose. And so, you know, the third tank was primarily intended for Skylab uh, testing, and then it was used for Skylab training. But they actually um, kept it in use during the shuttle era. And some of the HST um, missions were trained in uh, NBS, like most of the shuttle and um, ISS work was was trained in the NBL at Johnson, um, but at least uh, at least the first mission. I'm not sure how much uh, HST work was that was actually done in this tank, but like th this thing like actually was you know used for the kind of things that we think of being limited to NBL and um, wet F the um weightless environment training facility uh at johnson and like nbl wasn't actually in use until something like 1977 i believe it was you know like a direct follow-on uh to the wet f the 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 wet facility i don't know it's such a good acronym but i don't i don't know exactly how it's pronounced and I was trying to figure out if if uh, the weightless environment training facility was used at the point where they transitioned over to MBL, whether they were using WETF more than NBS. And, and that kind of seems uh, to be the case, at, at very least for ISS and Space Station Freedom. It, it, from what I understand, like when they started working on these really large space construction projects or, you know, getting ready for them, 
uh, they decided that they needed something gigantic and dedicated at Johnson. I've got some photos uh, in the show notes that actually show not only H like an, a, a Hubble mock-up, but a, a shuttle cargo bay mock-up mm-hmm. uh, in this lab. And it, it's, it, it's really cool. Like this was a facility that I really, I, I didn't realize that it was a thing at all. Like if you would have said NBS, I would have gone, oh, you mean NBL. You know, like I didn't even yeah, realize exactly. that it was a thing. And it, it turns out that it was actually instrumental and, you know, kind of controversial and kind of uh, skin of their teeth kind of uh, kind of a thing. And it it makes me happy to to learn more and more about the different efforts that we went through uh, sort of as a nation, but, you know, more as a species, just like we we don't have a lot of money to do this. Let's go do it anyway. Oh. Can I throw out a self-burn before we uh, <laughs> close things? <laughs> a, a, self, a self-correction burn. Self-correction burn, yeah. Uh, it was STS-3, the Jack Lausma flight, not STS-2. Oh, whatever. That, that's that's my kind of thing to basically try to volunteer helpful information and then say something entirely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so James really well encapsulates the way that I feel about this. He says, every time I see underwater photos, I assume they're in Houston. I had no idea this kind of thing was in Alabama mm. as well. Yeah, exactly. Like now, it's one of those things that makes you kind of question, like, how? How how many photos of NBS have I actually seen? Cool. Um. Well, that that was a good job. You researched some information and you pulled a lot more out of that than I would have been able to. So good job there. And we learned all about the neutral buoyancy labs and neutral buoyancy simulators. <laughs> Can I just point out that that giant third tank used to be an explosive forming tank. <laughs> That makes me so happy. Oh. <laughs> sorry, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> All right, so moving on to the next week. Um, our date range is the 7th through the 13th of September. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. And I'll make sure I read the date cr- or the year correctly. <laughs> next week in 2004, that's right, 2004, the end of the beginning and the beginning of the salvaging. The end of the beginning and the beginning of the salvaging. So we can say with confidence that is the correct date mm-hmm. range. We just double-checked. And um, as for the clue, I have no idea. But if anyone out there thinks that they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving right along to upcoming spaceflight events, then we just got uh, two little events. One very cool launch uh, we've been waiting for for a very long time. So I have the honor <laughs> of announcing the uh, first launch of a new vehicle entirely, and that is Firefly's uh, Firefly Alpha launch vehicle. And so this is FLTA-001 Dream Mission. And so this will be uh, the first launch from Firefly with their rocket uh, with uh, a scheduled time uh, window at uh, on September 3rd at 0100 to 0500 UTC. Uh, since it is flying out of Vanderbilt, though, locally, and for Americans at least, uh, this will be September 2nd between 1800 to 2200 hours uh, Pacific Daylight Time. And so, uh, again, there's it's some really cool stuff, and you can check out the official uh, streamer of this uh, person who will be covering it is uh, Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. And so uh, check out his website for a lot of details uh, and information. We can share it in the show notes, I'm sure. Um, but also, yeah, uh, be I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful job because he's been uh, doing a lot of great streams and so of, of launches. And so this should be no different. Okay. And then after that, on September 
3rd, you can tune in to NASA TV or however you want to watch it. Um, at 10 a.m., coverage begins of the International Space Station Expedition 65, and that is a Russian spacewalk number 49, and that is to begin outfitting the Nauka module and will last around 6 hours and 50 minutes. So, yeah, like a typical, you know, 7-hour spacewalk. So that'll be cool to see some Russians do a Russian spacewalk on a Russian module because uh, I don't think we see those too often, really. Nauka being Nauka, anything can happen. Yeah. Okay, so those are your upcoming space flight events. All right. Well, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. A special shout out to today's people who joined us live in the chat, James Sutherland, Mike Stewart, Sam, Colin, and Delta V. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, tell a friend, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links for Orbital Podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody, and good luck to Louisiana. See you.